in 300 meters. Take the left. Ouch. That hurts. Oh, just die, you. Greetings, boys and ghouls. It's your friend, the Crypt Keeper. And I, too, took a left at the valley. <laughs> Come on, was that not the best intro ever? <laughs> Go Kevin. Woohoo! Welcome to another edition of Left of the Valley. Hey guys, Halloween special. Happy Halloween. All yeah. right. Ooh, I parked my broom right at the door. I may have to <laughs> use it halfway through. <laughs> Welcome guys, and we're going to have some fun today. I've got some great guests in the studio with me. I've got, of course, as usual, Nancy. How you doing? Oh yeah, here I am. And, of course, I've got Connie that's new to the show, but it's her second show now, right? That's the second now, one. You're an expert already. Oh, well, we're learning. And you brought your donors. I did. I have Savannah um, on my left. All right. And I have uh, Samantha on my right. Awesome. Thanks, guys, for coming. Well, we're going to have a great show today. We're going to be talking about ghost stories, Ghost in the Valley. That's what we're going to name the show. But before all that, there's a few things I wanted to chat about since you guys are like my group therapy anyway. <laughs> so let's go into that right away. Um, now, you guys might not know, but it is today Connie's birthday. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> now, Connie being such a great person and we love her already and everything, Sam, right beside you on the other side of the couch there, there's a little bag. Can you pick that up? Aww. That's for your mom. Because we appreciate her. Oh, how lovely. Thank you, thank you. The last time I was here, it was your birthday. That's right. I know, everybody's in October. What's up with that? I know, and it was Savannah's birthday a couple weeks ago, too, and she turned 16. Oh. Oh, yummy chocolate. Just what we need. Mm. Just what we need. If you don't want it, I'll have it. Mm. Yeah, no. (laughs) Oh, we're setting a great great tradition here. We're going to have to have somebody with their birthday every show now. (laughs) I think so. I think so. (laughs) Fair enough. Thank you so much. My pleasure, dear. Thank you for being part of the team. No worries. But before we get into our usual uh, This Day in History, I wanted to have uh, your uh, impression on uh, we just had an election and uh, uh, there was a huge change and uh, the conservatives were essentially kicked out and uh, a a majority liberal uh, Mm -hmm. led by a son of uh, legendary Pierre Trudeau came in, Justin Trudeau. Uh, What do you guys think? I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Right off the bat. Okay, fine. You're you're the next generation. You're 16. You're young. Did you follow that? Justin Trudeau? Yeah. I, I well, did you follow the election in general? Or? Oh, yes, I did. Um, we, we just finished politics in social studies. So You did? Yeah, like just this at the beginning of the year, that's what we started learning, right? So we learned a lot about like the difference between conservatives and NDP and liberal and stuff like that. So I kind of already knew um, the stuff, like most of the stuff I needed to know. So I was getting excited when it was election time and yeah. Did you have political discussions with your friends in, in class or after class? Um, not really, but like I, I knew like some of the issues that they were talking about, and um, uh, we, you know, in class we just kind of went over those kind of issues, like stuff like um, building pipelines and stuff like that, and so we kind of discussed those in class. So I, yeah, that's very encouraging because uh, there's one thing that was kind of faulting the educational system is they don't seem to prepare the kids. 
to go and know how to vote and all that. And I hear that a lot from a lot of students. So to hear that from a 16-year-old, I'm, you know, that's, that's really good news. Yeah, I, I didn't know much about it before this uh, year. And now I think I know a lot more than I did before. Like, I actually know what an NDP is and, like, all that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> awesome. That's great. <laughs> so, okay, Connie, what about you? What do you think? Oh, I was happy that uh, Justin came in, or Mr. Trudeau came in. So I, I, we watched most of it on Monday night as a family until we had to leave. And as I saw the ridings, seeing liberal, 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 we were getting pretty excited at home that mm-hmm. uh, I was pretty sure it was going to be a majority government. So well, you, you're, I had a feeling. You're, you're better than I, because I did not expect that at all. Oh, I knew it. I uh, knew it was going to be Justin. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, two weeks before the election, it looked like the NDP were going in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our friend that we uh, we uh, talked to a couple of shows ago, White Scott, was doing very well as well. And then all of a sudden, I don't know what happened, but then Justin just kept on climbing. Oh, yeah. And there oh, he's, yeah. he's in. And, you know, by that morning, I was hearing rumor of liberal majority. I said, nah, no way. But yes. Oh, wow. Surprisingly. Actually, the night before, I was uh, with a friend out in uh, North Vancouver at Lonsdale Key, and we actually went to a liberal rally. And uh, we waited in the rain for close to two hours before we actually were let, uh, let into the hotel foyer. And uh, he came in, uh, Justin Trudeau came in, and we actually heard him speak to the crowd. I think he spoke to us for about half an hour. Uh, so it was kind of neat to be part of, of history the day before seeing him speak. And it was 4,000 people in this teen, teeny tiny little room, but the energy was amazing. And when I came home and told the girls about it, they were quite excited. And Yeah, and I was jealous. Yeah. <laughs> hold on a second. Hold on a second. Are you saying you saw the hair? I saw the hair. Oh. <laughs> saw the hair. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. He's so dreamy. Uh, he's so dreamy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's a really, really good speaker, uh, and he engaged the crowd, and it was just an awesome experience to, to see this the day before the election. So it was yeah, that young energy. I mean, he oh, definitely. Just, you, you can just feel it. Even watching on television, mm-hmm. you just feel that energy come right oh, yeah. through the oh, screen, yeah. and it's just, um, it, it's exciting. It's he's just a, a it's like guy. a new era, and it's exciting mm-hmm. to have someone that youthful take over. Who, it's about time. Who seems to get it in terms of Canadian politics and, and, and heritage and culture and where we want to go. And, yeah, and hopefully he'll, he'll lead us in the right direction over Fingers the next crossed. couple of years. Fingers crossed. Absolutely. Yeah. Anything has to be better than, than the last couple of years. So. <laughs> now, anybody, anybody who knows me knows that I'm not a conservative supporter by any stretch of the imagination. And I've been saying that for at least 20 years now. Because I think the whole problem started occurring when uh, it was Ronald Reagan down the States, it was Brian Mulroney up here and Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. You know, that detour, that 40-year detour, mm-hmm. I think and I hope is coming to an end. I hope so, yeah. Because right now we're going back to where Jimmy Carter kind of left us. You know, the solar panel on the, on, the, on the White House and all that. We're getting back to that now. So we just made a 40-year experimental detour into conservatism and it was miserable. <laughs> And I hope, I hope it's over. No offense to all my conservative friends. You know, I mean, you, you want to be fiscally conservative, that's fine. But you know what? That was a miserable, miserable time yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. in our life. And let's hope we get better days yeah. coming up ahead. Oh, yeah. We will with him. Okay, perfect. Um, I share your optimism. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Nancy. We'll might as well get going with this day in history. All righty. This Day in History, which is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the dates between October the 12th and October 25th. 
Well, going back to October the 12th, it was Columbus Day, and a lot of people don't want to celebrate Columbus Day anymore. They have an anti-Columbus Day called Free Thought Day. So depending on what your orientation is, you could either celebrate one or the other. Um, October the 12th, let's go back to 1799. Okay, we're thinking 1799, and we picture women in the long skirts and trussed up like turkeys at Thanksgiving and difficult to move. Well, let's have another picture in front of us of Jean, Jean-Vive Lavrosse. And she was the first woman, and this is 1799, as I've said before, she was the first woman to jump from a balloon with a parachute from an altitude of 900 meters. (laughs) Why leave such a perfectly good balloon? (laughs) You know, maybe the time clock ran out hard to tell. (laughs) Anyway, at 900 meters, and she was the wife of a balloonist, and he was a hydrogen balloonist, an inventor of a frameless parachute. But she had no fear. She would go up there, and she first uh, flew in 1798, and she was one of the first and earliest women, of course, to fly in a balloon, and she subsequently became the first to ascend solo and the first woman to make a parachute descent in the gondola from an altitude of the 900 meters. Uh, on the day that we're talking about, October the 12th. And she also filed a patent for her husband's parachute. And we never hear about this woman. We hear about Amelia Earhart Mm -hmm. generations later. But it's people like Jean Genevieve that really set the, the tone for other women to say, we can do this. We can get out of our skirts and fly. <laughs> so we've got to really, you know, congratulate. She and, wasn't using the skirt as a parachute, was she? N- well, you know, she could have come to think of it. That's, that's a, a sturdy skirt. That's a sturdy skirt and a wonderful picture. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Let's go up to 1892, and it was the uh, first time that the Pledge of Allegiance was recited by students in the U.S., and actually it was part of a celebration marking the 400th anniversary of Columbus's voyage, and that's a little bit of trivia I didn't know um, but before, I, before I read it. Um, 1979, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, um, which was the first of five books in the Hitchhiker's Guide comedy science fiction by Douglas Adams. Are you a fan of uh, Hitchhiker? I've never read the book. I saw the movie. It's a classic. Yeah, Connie, did you Never read it? it. I'm a big reader, but that's one thing I've never read. Oh, it's one of those that you really, really have to read. It. It's it's really funny. It's lighthearted. And well, they it, say the answer is 42, right? <laughs> that's that's right. The answer is absolutely 42. And if you read the book, you'll know, <laughs> you'll know why. Um, October 15th is Teacher's Day in Brazil. And October 15th was also the publication date of A Short History of Atheism. And it was, came out in paperback in 2010, written by Gavin Hyman, a name that I don't know in the atheist world. Do you, Kevin? No, not familiar. No, I don't know either. Um, he traces the route by which modern epistemological discussion... I can say that word now that I know... Peter Bergogian. Peter Bergogian. <laughs> Thank you, Peter. Now it rolls off my tongue and I never, <laughs> never knew it existed. Thank you, Peter. Uh, discussion produced... Um, uh, when uh, by athe- uh, for atheism rather, um, Mr. Hyman is a lecturer in religious studies at Lancaster University, and he's the author of a very scholarly work called "Deep Breath: The Predicament of Postmodern Theology, Radical Orthodoxy, or Nihilistic Textualism." 
If you get by that title, I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff in there. Okay, let's go to October the 16th, which was World Food Day. Okay, let's go back to 1869. This is a wonderful story. It's not a Halloween story, but it sort of skirts around the edges a little bit because it has to do with the Cardiff Giant. And this was one of the most famous hoaxes in United States history. The Cardiff Giant was a 10-foot tall, purported, petrified man who was uncovered on October the 16th in 1869 by workers who were digging a well behind the barn in Cardiff, New York. So here's the story behind this. The giant was actually the creation of a New York tobacconist named George Hull. And Hull was an atheist who decided to create the giant after he had an argument at a Methodist revival reading uh, about Genesis 6-4, uh, stating that there were giants who once lived on earth. So he decided that what he was going to do was to create this giant. And he wanted to show up the Methodist minister that he was talking with, but he also thought there was a buck in it that he could put in his pocket. He was he was a, one of these guys that if he saw an opportunity to make money, he'd jump on it. Yeah, that's a perfectly reasonable explanation, Perfectly right? reasonable. I mean. Yeah, but what he did, I mean, there are <laughs> practical jokes and hoaxes, but what he did was, first of all, he had two men carve out a 10-foot block of gypsum then he shipped the gypsum um, to Chicago, hired a stonecutter to carve it in the likeness of a man, and then transported it by rail to his cousin's farm in New York. That alone was 2600 bucks. Jeez. I know. He was de- but He's he dedicated for that prank. He was dedicated, but he thought he was going to make the money back. And here's how, here's how, he, here's how he thought he was going to do it. He waited a year. And then where the, the they bur- where they buried the the man, it was actually his cousin's farm. So they got two guys to dig a well right where they knew they had buried the Cardiff giant. And the two men looked down in surprise and said, "Wow, this must be some old Indian we <laughs> uncovered." So they got him out, and now he was ten feet tall and anatomically correct. So right away, he was, un- he was unusual. <laughs> so they dug him out, notified the, the newspapers and everybody else they could, put a tent over him, and charged 50 cents for people who wanted to come see it. Well, people came from all over, and they were me- making money. I mean, wagons were coming, and people were looking and telling children, avert your eyes. But, you know, who did, right? Mm-hmm. So during this time, archaeological scholars pronounced him a fake because they knew fake from original. But there were a lot of Christian fundamentalists who defended the authenticity. So they were making pretty good money, but eventually Saul uh, Hull sold part of his interest to a syndicate headed by David Hannum. David Hannum was a banker. Now, everybody thinks that when you say the phrase, there's a sucker born every minute, that it's P.T. Barnum. That's right. It's not. It was David Hannum, the bar, uh, the banker, who said it because he realized he had a little gold mine going because there were a lot of suckers who were going to pay money to see this fake. He, he, knew it, he knew it was a fake. Anyway, they moved it to Syracuse, New York, where... P.T. Barnum showed up and said, I'd like to pay $50,000. 
for the Cardiff man. Well, the syndicate turned him down, so P.T. Barnum hired a man to create a plastic replica, and he put his giant on display in New York, claiming that that was the real giant, and the Cardiff giant was a fake. Wow. (laughs) Okay. I'll speak the fake. Exactly. So now Hannum sues Barnum for calling his giant a fake. (laughs) But the judge says, okay, if it's your giant that's real, get the giant over here to swear that he's genuine, and then you can go sue him. So the, the judge knew he had two crackpots on his hand and tried to avert the lawsuit. But no, Hannum sued Barnum for calling his giant a fake. But during the trial, the judge said, hey, guys, you know, you can't have a fake when it's a replica of another fake there's nothing there's nothing there's nothing going on here you're both you know trying to trying to make a buck on something that that never existed in the first place so sure enough the the the, uh, um, the fervor finally died down about the Cardiff Giant, but by that time, it still was um, kind of interesting because here was this ten foot statue and nobody knew what to do with it. So finally, an Iowa publisher bought it and he put it in his basement rumpus room <laughs> as a coffee table. <laughs> 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 I can't. Can you picture this anatomically correct ten foot statue? It's a, it's a conversation piece for sure. <laughs> it was a conversation piece. So eventually, he sold it to the Farmers Museum in Cooperstown, New York, where it resides today. Oh, <laughs> and it's such a silly story, but you know, you just want. Can you think? Do you think somebody could pull something like that off today? And closer. <laughs> There's a sucker born every minute, even suck- in 2015. I mean, do you think if someone said there was an alien that was buried in my backyard, <laughs> somebody somebody would say, oh, yeah. Maybe we should test that. Who is that? At any rate. So uh, speaking of which, October 21st was Back to the Future Day. Mm-hmm. And October 24th was United Nations Day. And here's the other great story. In 1901, we're finally in the 20th century here, guys. Um, an American adventurer whose name was Annie Edson Taylor um, decided that on her 63rd birthday, which was October the 24th, she'd like to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Oh. At, 60, <laughs> at 63. Of course. I mean, what, I mean, what else have you got to do? You know, she probably ate all the chocolates and said, okay, now let's get down to the real fun. Was she the first one? Actually, she was the first woman wow. to go. She was. And um, she decided that she wanted to do this so that maybe she could make some money and avoid the poorhouse. So she actually, she was the first person, not only the first woman, but the first person. So... Um, before she went down and they they had a custom made barrel, they sent a cat over. <laughs> they sent a cat. <laughs> this is and this isn't even a baseball story, Kevin. <laughs> they, sent, they sent the cat over. That, that is the, the worst nightmare for a cat I can I imagine. Yeah, but he went over in her barrels to see whether or not over would, a waterfall for a yeah, cat. Yeah, so the cat made it. Believe it or not, so the cat made it. So. And he said, okay, the cat made it. It's my turn. So they brought her out there, and she had a lucky heart-shaped pillow that she brought with her. They pumped all the air out of the, um, out of the, the barrel so that she wouldn't roll around in there, um, plugged the hole up with a cork, and off she went right near Goat Island. And the currents carried her over the, 
the uh, Canadian side of Horseshoe Falls, and that's uh, since been the site of all of the daredevil stunting at Niagara Falls. So they reached her barrel shortly after the plunge, and she was alive, relatively uninjured, except for a tiny gash, and the trip took um, about 20 minutes, but it was some time before they actually got to her. So she earned a lot of money about her experience and never was able to build, you know, a lot of wealth. And here's, again, another funny twist that her manager ran away with the barrel. <laughs> and most of, her, most of her savings were used for a private detective to try to find it. So they eventually found it in Chicago, but then it disappeared again. So she uh, had, you know, she went downhill, really. I mean, down, down, down. <laughs> I just realized what I said. She went down. <laughs> ah, yeah, downstream, yeah, yeah. downstream. Ah, downstream. She went downstream. Thank you. She went downstream really quick. But uh, she attempted to write a novel and so forth and so on. But she died at age 82. And believe it or not, she is interred in the stunters section of Oakwood Cemetery in Niagara Falls. Did you know there was a stunters section? No, but it kind of makes sense all of a sudden, you know, with all the stunts they've had over Niagara Falls. Yeah. Why would they have a... They have a stunters section. I don't know how many died later in life and how many actually died in the attempt. But anyway, we, you know, poor, poor, poor Annie, she really did the best she could, you know, <laughs> but uh, never, never got the fame and, and fortune that she wanted. <laughs> so anyway, here we go, uh, October 25th is Thanksgiving Day in Granada. And in 1923, Frederick Banting and J.J.R. McLeod of the University of Toronto jointly won the Nobel Prize for Medicine for their discovery of... Penicillin. Close. Anybody guess? Penicillin was um, in in the States. But this was the first Canadian Nobel Prize for... Medicine, but that was a that was a good guess. It was for oh, hormone uh, insulin. In, yeah, I was about to say that. Oh, okay. Did insulin. I cut you? I'm sorry. I no, I was I was thinking about it, but yeah, no, it was. Insulin. It was. Yeah, I'll it give was, myself a point. Yeah, well, <laughs> you get you get all the points. Are you kidding? I never get a point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't get them in the in the pop quiz or even. <laughs> okay, other other than the downhill, <laughs> miserable little pun there. Um, we're going to bring to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events and people that make up this day in history. Another good one. Thank you, Nancy. <laughs> and we'll be right back right after this. What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. The BC Humanist Association has been active in the Vancouver area for over 25 years. We offer a friendly and welcoming place to make new friends, as well as free educational lectures. We invite you to join us any Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Oak Ridge Senior Center. Please visit our website for more details, bchumanist.ca. And we're back. Of course, it's Halloween. you got to play the Monster Mash, right? (laughs) How about Thriller? Yeah. Maybe later. Okay. <laughs> Can't give it away. <laughs> well, this is Halloween special, so I thought I'd regale you guys with the origins of Halloween. Does anybody know about that? I mean, we celebrate it, we know, we have fun with it, but do you have any idea? 
I'll um, take that as a no. <laughs> wait, maybe something to do with like the jack o' lantern scaring off like witches and stuff. I don't know. That's yeah. Better. There's a lot of urban legends about that. Yeah, I don't know. Well, the ancient origins of Halloween. Halloween's origins date back to the ancient Celtic festival of um, Samhain. Although it's spelled Samhain, it's actually pronounced Samhain. The Celts, who lived uh, 2,000 years ago in the area, which is now Ireland, the United Kingdom and Northern France, celebrated their new year on November 1st. This day marked the end of the summer and the harvest and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, a time of year that was often associated with human death. Now, the Celts believed that on the night before the new year, the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead became kind of blurred. On the night of October 31st, they celebrated Samhain, when it was believed that the ghost of the dead returned to Earth. In addition to causing trouble in da- and damaging crops, the Celts thought that the presence of the o- otherworldly spirits made it easier for the Druids, which were like the priests, to make predictions about the future. So for people that were entirely dependent on the volatile natural world, those prophecies were pretty important. So to commemorate the event, the Druids would build huge sacred bonfires where the people gathered to burn crops and animals as sacrifices to the gods. During their celebration, the Celts wore costumes, typically consisting of animal heads and skins, and attached uh, and attempted to tell each other's fortunes. When the celebration was over, they relit their, their hearth fire, which they had extinguished earlier that evening, from the sacred bonfire to help protect them during the coming winter. Now, by 43 AD, the Roman Empire had conquered the majority of the Celt territory. In the course of the 400 years that ruled the Celtic lands, two festivals of Roman origins were combined with the traditional Celtic celebration of Soin. The first was a Feralia, a day in late October when the Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead. The second was a day to honor Pomona, the Roman goddess of fruit and trees. The symbol of Pomona is the apple, and incorporation of this celebration into Soin probably explained the tradition of bobbing for apples. And on May 13, in 1609 AD, the Pope, go forward in time here, the Pope Boniface IV dedicated the Pantheon of, in Rome in honor of all Christian martyrs. And we all know that the Christians have this nasty tendency to bring in their celebrations, you know, to try to assimilate the local people. So uh, all the Catholics' feasts uh, of all martyrs' day was all martyrs' day were established at the Western Church, and Pope Gregory III at that point, which is in 731 to 741, later expanded the festival to include all saints as well as martyrs, and moved the observance from May 13th to November 1st. So that's why we have All Saints' Day after Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the ninth century, the influence of Christianity has spread to Celtic lands, and where it gradually blended and supplanted the older Celtic rite. By 1000, the year 1000, the church would make November 2nd All Souls Day to honor the, the, uh, the dead. It is widely believed today that the church was attempting to replace the Celtic Festival of the Dead with a related but church-sanctioned holiday, which we know from history they always did that. All Souls Day was celebrated similarly to uh, Samhain, big fires, parades, dressing up in costumes as saints, angels, and devils. The All Saints Day celebration was also called All Hallows, or All Hallow Mass, from the Middle English All Hallow Mies, meaning All Saints Day. And the night before, the traditional in night of Soin in the Celtic region began to be called All Hallows Eve, and eventually Halloween. Oh, there's still a lot of text here. <laughs> so in the second half of the 19th century, America was flooded with new immigrants. 
These new immigrants, especially the millions of Irish fleeing Ireland's potato famine of 1846, helped to popularize the celebration of Halloween nationally. Taken from the Irish and English tradition, Americans began to dress up in costumes and go house to house asking for goods or money, a practice that eventually became today's trick-or-treating. Young women believed that on Halloween they could divine the appearance, the name or the appearance of their future husband by doing tricks with yarn, apple, pairing, and mirrors. You know, who's going to be my boyfriend kind of thing? In the late 1800s, there was a move in America to mold Halloween into a holiday more like community and uh, neighborly get-together about, you know, instead of ghosts and pranks and witchcraft. At the turn of century, Halloween parties for both children and adults became the most common way to celebrate the day. The parties focused on games, food, and the, the season of festive costumes. Parents were encouraged by newspapers and community leaders to take anything frightening or grotesque out of Halloween celebration. Because of their efforts, Halloween lost most of the superstition and religious overtones at the beginning of the 20th century. So even not that far behind, about 100 years, Halloween was not exactly what we have like we have today. Now by 1920 and 1930, Halloween had become a more secular but community-centered holiday. With parades and town ride, uh, town-wide parties and, uh, and featured entertainment. Despite the best effort of many schools and communities, vandalism began to plague uh, Halloween celebrations in many communities during that time. By 1950, town leaders had successfully limited vandalism and Halloween had evolved into a holiday directed mainly at the young. Due to the high numbers of young children during the 50s because of the baby boom, um, parties moved down from town civic centers into the classroom or home where they could be more easily accommodated. Between 1920 and 1950, the centuries-old practice of trick-or-treating was also revived. The trick or <coughs> Excuse me. Trick-or-treating was a relatively inexpensive way for an entire community to share the Halloween celebration. In theories, families could also prevent tricks from being played on them by providing the neighborhood children with small treats. A new American tradition was born, and it was it continued to grow into today. And today, um, this is just for the Americans, but the the estimate just in the U.S. they spend an estimated six billion dollars annually on Halloween, making it the country's second largest commercial holiday. Yeah, so that was it. That was our our, our Halloween uh, origins. Yeah, cool. it's, 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 it's interesting. In, it's interesting. Yeah, did, when when you, you guys were little, did you have Halloween parties at home? Did you follow follow the trend? Uh, we just kind of dressed up and went trick or treating. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, now I kind of go to Halloween parties, but it's not really like. Like they described there, but you know, uh, yeah, I've heard of your parties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told, I told. Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> we 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 won't we won't get on over that. No, thanks. <laughs> but but it's surprising to see how actually the, the version of Halloween that we have today is actually very recent. You know, you you think mm-hmm. it'd be it's been like that for hundreds of years? No, no, it's very recent. Yeah. You talk about the fifties. It's really not that far. So anyway. Uh, the show today is about doing, you know, a bit of campfire stories, you know. So I think what I'm going to do here is I'm going to put a virtual campfire. There we go. I'm going to tell ghost stories. Who wants to go first? Or should I? You know what? I also have one from Al, uh, from our friend in, uh, in Chilliwack. He sent one uh, via recording. Should I play that one first? Sure. Okay. Get us all started. Yeah, absolutely. All right. And then we can munch on some Halloween cookies while we're listening. I'm no dummy. (laughs) 
Of course, he always has to put the music like that. Oh, it's me, the Reformed. Kevin asked me to give you a scary story, so I'm out about driving, and I thought, what better time to do a scary story than when I'm, I'm sitting in a dark car parked somewhere in the Fraser Valley. That sounds actually kind of weird. Anyway, when I was a, a wee kid growing up in Scotland, uh, we had a story about a young couple who were on their honeymoon, and they were driving along a place called the Fennec Moor, which is a very dark and foggy moor. And as they're driving along, happily blissful in their new marriage, they hear this noise coming from the, the roof of the car. And they, uh, what's that? I don't know. Well, let's just keep driving and we'll, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe something's come loose up on there because they put their suitcases on the roof of the car. So they're driving a little bit more and all of a sudden they hear, what the hell is that? Wife says, husband says, I have no idea. Listen, maybe I should pull over and have a look. Okay, she says. So he pulls the car over on the, on the moor and it's very dark and very foggy. And uh, he's out the car and he says to his wife, now lock the doors and don't let anybody in. So he shuts the door and she locks all the doors and he disappears into the fog. And she can still hear the noise, the banging on top of the roof. All night. She's kind of worried, but her husband said not to leave. So she, she kind of curls up into her jacket and falls asleep with the, the roof of the car. She wakes up really suddenly. It's daylight. Still a bit foggy, but it's daylight. It's really, really quiet. She gets opens the, the latch on the door and she gets out. She takes a few steps away from the car and all of a sudden she hears... And she turns around and there's a man sitting on top of the roof of their car and in his hand is her husband's head as he's banging it against the roof of the car. Banging, banging as she screams and ran into the moor, never to be seen again. And that's my scary story. I don't think it's very scary. I should have went with the Sonny Bing family. All right, anyway, that's me, the Reformed. I hope you enjoyed the story. And uh, let's go back to the bodies hitting the floor. Back to you, Kevin. Happy Halloween, everyone. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. <laughs> you know, a scary story is always better with a wee bit of an accent. And in this case, oh, yeah. the, 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 the Scottish moor, yeah, and it really added to it. I was enjoying just listening to the accent as he told the story. You know, it's so funny because I, 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 I've spoken to him so many times and I know him, I've seen him and all that, but and I knew he was Scottish, but I never noticed the accent until that story. You know, as soon as he said Scotland and then the moors and then all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, there it is. <laughs> I never, You've never noticed. heard it? I've never paid attention to it. I've never noticed it till now. Well, that's because you, when you're sitting, you're interacting and you're looking at him and you're listening to so. everything. And, you know, you know him so well. But now just listening to his voice, it's, <laughs> you know, I wish he had retained much more of his accent. <laughs> we'll have to get him to, to, to tell a story of some kind and just really put on the, <laughs> the, the accent as heavy as he can. It'd be fun. All right, so I've got several stories. I've got, I've actually got three stories, just in case you guys didn't have any stories. So mind if I, I, I maybe I should start. 
Absolutely. Since yeah. I've got like then we can away. eat more cookies. Yeah, we can eat more cookies. Let, let's let's change this. You better cover your ears, Samantha. <laughs> <laughs> She's kind of a wimp. <laughs> let's put something a bit more. You know. Ah, there we go. A bit more mood-wise. Do you need to hide under the table? <laughs> Should I hold you? Rock you to sleep? <laughs> I might have to tonight. With a real rock? Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd tell you guys a story, a very classic story. You guys have heard of the classic story of Bloody Mary? Variations yeah. of it, yeah. Yes, definitely. So, there we go. Let's try my, my best voice here. She lived deep in the forest, in a tiny cottage, and sold herbal remedies for a living. Folks living in the town nearby called her Bloody Mary and said she was a witch. None dared cross the old crone for fear that their cows would go dry. Their food stores rot away before winter. Their children take sick of fever or any number of terrible things that an angry witch could do to her neighbors. Then the little girls in the village began to disappear one by one. No one could find out where they had gone. Grief-stricken families searched in the woods, the local buildings, and all the houses and barns, but there was no sign of the missing girls. A few brave souls even went to Bloody Mary's home in the woods to see if the witch had taken the girls, but she denied any knowledge of the disappearances. Still, it was noted that her haggard appearance had changed. She looked younger, more attractive. The neighbors were suspicious but they could find no proof that the witch had taken their young ones. Then came the night when the daughter of the miller rose from the bed and walked outside, following an enchanted sound no one else could hear. The miller's wife had a toothache and was sitting up in the kitchen, treating the tooth with a herbal remedy when her daughter left the house. She screamed for her husband and followed the girl out the door. The miller came running in his nightshirt. Together they tried to restrain the girl, but she kept breaking away from them and heading out of town. The desperate cries of the miller and his wife woke the neighbors. They came to assist the frantic couple. Suddenly a sharp-eyed farmer gave a shout and pointed towards a strange light at the edge of the woods. A few townsmen followed him out into the field and saw Bloody Mary standing beside a large oak tree holding a magic wand that was pointed towards the miller's house. She was glowing with an unearthly light, and she set her evil spell upon the miller's daughter. The townsmen grabbed their guns and their pitchforks and ran towards the witch. When she heard the commotion, Bloody Mary broke off her spell and fled back into the woods. The far-sighted farmer had loaded his gun with silver bullets in case the witch ever came up after his daughter. Now he took aim and shot at her. The bullet hit Bloody Mary in the hip and she fell to the ground. The angry townsmen leapt upon her and carried her back into the field where they built a huge bonfire and burned her at the stake. As she burned, Bloody Mary screamed the curse at the villagers. If anyone mentioned her name aloud before a mirror, she would send her spirit to revenge herself from them from her terrible death. 
When she was dead, the villagers went to the house in the woods and found the unmarked graves of the little girls the evil witch had murdered. She had used her blood to make her young again. From that day to this, anyone foolish enough to chant Bloody Mary's name three times before a darkened mirror will summon the vengeful spirit of the witch it is said that she will tear their bodies to pieces and rip their souls from their mutilated bodies. The souls of these unfortunate ones will burn in torment as Bloody Mary once was burned, and they will be trapped forever in the mirror. <laughs> that's scary. That's a, that's a classic, classic tale. It's wonderful. You did it so well. Oh, thank you. I almost felt the the bonfire and I could taste the uh, the s'mores. You know, you, you go, <laughs> the s'mores. The s'mores. You know, as you sit around the campfire, you have you didn't ever eat <laughs> s'mores when they were telling telling ghost stories in the in the in the forest. Well, Kevin? no, I guess no. I never thought about it. <laughs> you know what? You know what s'mores are, though. Yes, right? of course. Oh, okay. Of course. Yeah. All right. Who wants to go next? You should go. Okay. Hold on a sec. Let me let me just get you some good music here. Uh, okay, dear. Okay, so there was this girl named Susan, and um, she sat in her living room one night when her parents were away and they said they weren't going to be home till later so she sat in her living room watching tv and in her living room there was it was like a couch and then across from her was a big bay window and there was the tv on the right and it was a snowy evening um it'd been snowing all afternoon and she was watching one of her favorite uh horror films and then she looked over and she saw a man coming towards her in the window and as he got closer she noticed that he was scarred all over his face he had like a creepy smile on and uh so she was kind of terrified she didn't want to think too much about it because i mean it was late uh, her eyes could be playing tricks on her right so she watched her movie some more and the guy never never moved he just stayed there and had a knife in his hand staring at her and uh, so a few hours passed. Uh, she didn't want to call her parents because she didn't want to seem like she couldn't take care of, her, care of herself, right? She was a teenager, so she didn't want to rely on her parents. So she called the police and said, uh, oh, there's a man standing outside my house with a knife, and, you know, I'm kind of scared. So the police came, and um, they said, you know, there's, I, there's no sign of anyone being outside. There's, it, there would have been footprints in the snow, if uh, if there was someone standing there and the snow was undisturbed, so she was kind of confused. They said, you know, it's late. You could have been seeing something. It's, you know, you're scared from the movie, right? You could have seen a person, but it's not really there. So the police were leaving, and then one of the officers uh, saw behind her couch um, some, like, wet footprints on the floor. And they pulled the couch away, and they saw that there was a knife under the ground. Uh, uh, sorry, under the couch. And so it turns out was that the killer was standing behind her the whole time. And so it was. It wasn't. It was the reflection of the man that she was seeing in the bay window. So he was actually behind her the whole time, and it wasn't just coming up from outside the window. So, ah! Yeah, he was behind her the whole time. Oh. Ooh, scary. Yeah, 
scary, scary. All right. Who wants to take the next one? Sammy? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I only have one story, and I I was told the story when I was about 14 or 15, and uh, I told the stories when we went to um, camps at the school throughout the school year so it may not be that scary but here i go uh a girl is at home she is getting ready to have a big party at her house mom and dad are gone and uh she turns on the radio as she's preparing for her party she hears on the radio that a psycho killer uh everybody to be in their houses safely there's a curfew in place but do not leave your house just in case her friends start to arrive they're having their party They're upstairs. They're all getting ready for bed. The girl decides that she's going to bring her dog upstairs uh, to protect them if anything does go wrong. They all hunker down for the night. They're all in their sleeping bags. Some are on couches. Some are on beds. In the middle of the night, the girl wakes up and she hears banging noises. She reaches down, puts her hand down, and she feels her dog lick her hand. Okay, everything is fine. Everything is fine. She goes back to sleep couple hours later she hears again a bang coming from somewhere in the room she wakes up she puts her hand back down and again the dog licks her hand okay everything is fine everything is fine it's morning time she's the first one awake she sits up in bed she rubs the sleep out of her eyes she looks around and she sees all of her friends dead she gets up runs to the bathroom and on the bathroom mirror she sees a sign written in blood humans can lick hands too Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I have. Oh, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a good one. I've got a story, an interesting story, as a because we did this segment of this day in history. Uh, did you know that the Napoleon Bonaparte had a brother? His name was Joseph, and he. There is also a legend about Joseph Bonaparte and the Jersey Devil. Hmm. You guys ever heard of the Jersey Devil? No. no. Yeah, it's quite famous in the, in New Jersey where uh, you know, the story is essentially where the uh, this this woman gives birth to a devil, you know, because she's had like so many kids and she screams at the last minute before she's about to give birth saying, you know, let this one be a devil. And he exactly that's what happens. And he escapes and he's been haunting the swamps of Jersey's ever since. Ooh, sort of a Rosemary's Baby. Sort of. Uh, Creepy, creepy. But this is the story of Joseph Bonaparte, who was the brother of Napoleon. Uh, He was the king of Spain. He was unsuccessful in defending Spain against England uh, during the Peninsula Wars, and he was forced to abdicate the throne in 1813. Following Napoleon's defeat, he went into exile in America. Joseph purchased 800 acres at Bordentown, New Jersey, because it was between two great seaports of New York and Philadelphia. From this place, he could obtain the very latest news from France and Spain. As befitting royalty, even the dethroned sort, Joseph built himself a lovely mansion with beautiful landscape grounds and plenty of parkland. Joseph Bonaparte entertained many of great men of this day, including John Adams, the Marquis of Lafayette, and Daniel Webster. He led a very glamorous social life, throwing marvelous parties with mountains of food at many guests. The Americans were very impressed with him. One snowy afternoon, the ex-king of Spain was hunting alone in the woods near his house, when he spotted some strange tracks on the ground. They looked like the tracks of a two-footed donkey, 
Bonaparte noticed that only one foot was slightly larger than the other, and the tracks ended abruptly as if the creature had flown away. So he stared at the tracks for a long moment, trying to figure out what was that strange animal, what could it be? At that moment, Bonaparte heard a strange hissing noise. Turning, he found himself face to face with a large winged creature with a horse-like head and bird-like legs. Astonished and frightened, he froze and stared at the beast, forgetting that he was carrying a rifle. For a moment, neither of them moved, but then the creature hissed at him, beat its wings, and flew away. When he reported the incident to a friend later that day, Bonaparte was told that he had just seen the famous Jersey Devil, who had haunted the Pine Barrens ever since he was born to Mother Leeds one dark and stormy night in 1735. Bonaparte was impressed by the story of the Jersey Devil and thereafter kept a lookout for the fabulous creature whenever he went hunting. When things settled down in Europe, Joseph Bonaparte returned to Europe and was reunited with his wife in Italy, but he never saw the Jersey Devil again. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody had a supernatural experience of any kind? Any, no, no. No? Anybody talked to a friend that you know that you liked and trusted and they told you a story where they actually had a supernatural experience of any kind? Well, I had something similar happen. Let's just uh I don't know if we could call it supernatural or anything like that. Uh I told Well it, ghostly. Well, I, I told it on the last last year when we did the uh, the Halloween special. I told the story of um, me seeing what it was essentially could be described as Bigfoot or Sasquatch, and this is actually here in Mission. Well, wow. across the water, and I'll just recap really quickly. Um, and the, the the funny thing is, people sometimes think I, I made it up when I tell this, but it it was a dark, foggy night. It really was that. I, I was coming back from work. I'd worked really, really late. It must have been like between 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'm driving, and at the time, I lived in the northern part of Mission in the farmlands. I was actually living on a tree farm. So I'm actually, as, as soon as you leave Mission, you go about 15 kilometers up into the woods. And that was the area I was in. So I'm driving down the road, and it's it's dark, and it's a full moon, and it's 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 foggy, and I'm falling asleep. I'm literally falling asleep at the wheel, and I'm I, I know I'm like one kilometer away from home, and I'm bobbing for apples. Like I can't wait to get home, and thank goodness it's you know had it been during the daytime, I probably would have parked and slept somewhere. <clears throat> but I'm driving down, and there's this fog, and there's uh, on each side of the road there's like a ditch, and all of a sudden I see something on the driver's side. And I drive right past it, and something tall, brown. And that's what I remember. My brain noticed a round head, thick, coarse hair. That's what my brain remembers registering. I, I can't really describe the rest of the body, but I remember like seeing the back of somebody's head. That's what I thought. And I drove by and turned into the, the driveway, uh, that little uh, farm there, and I parked the car. Then I, I sort of came back and said, what did I just see there? Now, this was like a couple hundred meters away. It wasn't very far. What did I just see? So I'm trying to go through my memories, which are supposed to be fresh, but I'm so tired. So I can't. I don't realize what's going on here. Uh, at the same time, one of our neighbors had dogs. And these dogs, they were in a kennel, and they were barking all the time, all the time, day or night. They were always barking, and they were getting on my nerves. So as I got out of the car, eerie silence. The dogs are not barking, but there is this howl, this 
I don't know what kind of howl it is. It's not, you know, I've heard coyotes, I've heard bears and stuff like that. It's nothing like that. There was this howl. It seems very far, but very close at the same time. And I know that, you know, all the hair on my, the back of my neck just stands up because I know that 400 meters around the corner is that thing I saw, which I can't remember what it was. So, okay. So I kind of hustled into the house, you know, the little log cabin that we had there. And, of course, everybody's sound asleep. And the, the fire is in the fireplace still, you know. On, on, and uh, the cats, which are usually, you know, at that time of night, they're usually playing around. Both of them are huddled under the couch, hugged, huddled together really closely, you know, just staring at me, you know, like wide awake. I said, like, what the hell is going on there? And I'm, I still can hear this howl. So I climb up to the second floor, which is where the bedroom was, and I'm looking out the window. I can't see anything. And eventually I fell asleep. And that's the story of my encounter. Ooh, do I, you ever dream? Do, does it ever come back in a dream to haunt you? The howl does. does the sound does. I, the the yeah. image, you know, I, you know, it's kind of funny because I really don't know what I saw. I, I don't know. Did I see a bear and my mind may distorted something? Did I see anything? I don't know because I was so tired. So I was a horrible witness. But that howl still some days, you know, oh. that howl just haunts me anyway. How do such experiences nightmares come? Ooh, I love it. <laughs> All right, Nancy, you have a story for us too. I do. I have a story, and if there's any longtime listeners, you're going to remember this story because it's one of the best ones, I think, that have come out of this day in history, and it's just perfect, perfect for Halloween. So if this is the second time you hear it, I know you'll still enjoy it. If it's the first time you hear it, it really get ready. This is a really great story. Um, and this is about the Greenbrier Ghost. And the history of the Greenbrier Ghost may be one of the most unique stories uh, of ghost lore because it's a strange tale from rural West Virginia. We love stories from the South. And it's not only a part of supernatural history, but of the history of the American judicial system. When do you ever hear ghost and judicial system in the same sentence? Anyway, it's a one-of-a-kind event, and it's the only case in which the word of a ghost helped to solve a crime and convict a murderer. Just wonderful. And the names of the people, I love wonderful names, and they're all in this story as well. So let's go back to 1897. And there was a young lady whose name was Elva Zona Heaster. Just a great southern name. And the poor girl was found dead in Greenbrier County, West Virginia. The resulting mur murder trial of her husband is perhaps, as I said, the only case where the alleged testimony of a ghost helped secure a conviction. Now, Elva Zona Heaster was a young lady who married a very good-looking young local blacksmith from Droop Mountain, West Virginia. <laughs> West Virginia. Droop Mountain. Droop Mountain. Not only did he come from Droop Mountain, West Virginia, but his name was Erasmus Stribbling Trout Shoe. And everybody called him Trout. He's a blacksmith. His last name is Shoe. What could be better than that? Mm -hmm. So Elva's mother, Mary Jane Heaster, 
I wonder if she wore the shoes as well. Anyway, Mary Jane Easter was very wary of Shu from the beginning. She just didn't like him, and she felt there was something dark and dangerous about the man. But because her daughter, Elvisona, had had an illegitimate child some years ago, she thought, aha, I'm finally getting my daughter married. I'm a little apprehensive, but I'm going to hope for the best. Well, three months later, it wasn't the best. After the the, um, the wedding and after they had settled down, a neighbor discovered her lifeless body and ran for the doctor. When the doctor arrived, uh, Trout had laid Elva out on the bed and prepared her for burial with a veil covering her face. That's very unusual in those times. Usually the, the family waited for the women of the church to come and prepare women for burial. But this doctor came and she had already on the bed. There's a veil over her face. But the doctor, whose name was George Knapp, probably didn't graduate from the head of the class. He found nothing <laughs> amiss with what he could see, even though uh, Trout Shoe was fussing with her and moving the veil and keeping the doctor from looking at her head. But he, the doctor figured, oh, it's just deep grief and pronounced her dead with everlasting faint. <laughs> just Everlasting faint. faint. Yeah, it very... Very technical term the doctors used back there who had no sense whatsoever. At any rate, um, Mary Jane was convinced that Trout murdered her daughter, and she prayed for her daughter to come back from the dead and reveal the truth about her death. And over the course of four dark nights, the spirit of Zona Shue appeared at her mother's bedside, and she'd come as a bright light at first, and then the apparition would take form, chilling the air in the entire room. She would awaken her mother from her sleep and explain over and over again how her husband had murdered her. She said that Trout had been abusive and cruel and had attacked her in a fit of rage because he thought she hadn't cooked any meat for supper. And he had then savagely broken her neck. And to show this, the ghost turned her head completely around until she was facing backwards. So weeks later, Mary Jane Heaster finally decided that she was going to go to the local prosecutor. His name was John Preston because she really didn't know whether or not the prosecutor would believe her or not. But she finally decided to, to do justice to her daughter. That's what she needed to do. So she went and told the, the prosecutor the story. And Preston may or may not have believed the story, but he was a thoughtful uh, man, and he was dedicated to justice. And he, unbeknownst to Mary, um, Mary Jane Heaster, he had started some investigation and found out that uh, Trout Shoe had been married twice before. Uh, he was divorced the first time, um, but the second wife had been found dead under suspicious circumstances. And th- although the second wife had been uh, found uh, struck by a rock and Elva had been a broken neck, th- still the, the fact that they had both been found dead so soon after the marriage was very suspicious. And so the um, uh, Elvis body was exhumed, and the local paper, which was called the Pocahontas Times, <laughs> even the paper had a good name. 
<laughs> so the Pocahontas Time said that there must be ample evidence to convict Trout Chu. So they had an exhumation, and they actually had the coroner's jury at the exhumation. It was very unusual compared to what happens now, but they actually had these men watching as the coroner um, did the autopsy. I don't think any of us would have wanted to have been there, but it was really, really interesting uh, how this was in, at, during that time in, in West Virginia. So um, the trial began in June of, 19, of 1897, and the highlight of the trial, of course, came with the appearance of the mother, Mary Jane Heaster. And this is really interesting to me. Preston, the um, prosecutor, put her on the stand as both the mother of the dead woman um, and uh, a, a community, an upstanding community member. But he wanted to make sure that she appeared sane and reliable. And so for this reason, he skirted the issue of the ghost story because it was bound to make her appear irrational. And because at that point, it was inadmissible evidence. So even though he, you know, sort of believed her and she was ready to tell the tale, the prosecutor said no even though there might be members of the community that would believe her it's going to make her look like a nut job however the attorney for trout shoe decided that he was going to broach that subject because he thought it would make her really look foolish and therefore make trout shoe look even better because if you had a mother who looked irrational, who was going to believe her? And then it would throw his guilt in doubt. So he decided, okay, I'm going to ask her the question. So Mary Jane um, started to tell the story, and she was so convincing and so rational with what she was saying that the jury believed her visions and the more she talked, the more the jury knew that Trout Shoe had to be guilty. So even though the attorney badgered her, she never wavered from what she had seen. And when the defense counsel realized that the testimony wasn't going the way he wanted, he dismissed her. By that time, the damage was done. And because the defense and not the prosecution had introduced the testimony about the ghost, the judge had a hard time telling the jury to exclude it. So the jury found him guilty, and he was sentenced to life in prison, and the jury believed her 100%. So they sent Shue, who was now called Edward Shue, um, to, uh, to prison where he died of a case of measles. <laughs> kind of a, a, you know, a, a strange twist, but pneumonia and measles going through prisons were, were pretty common in those days. So even today, um, the Greenbrier ghost lives because there is a historical marker in Greenbrier County on Route 90, and the historical marker says, Interred in nearby cemetery is Zona Heaster Shoe. Her death in 1897 was presumed natural until her spirit appeared to her mother to describe how she was killed by her husband, Edward. Autopsy on the exhumed body verified the apparition's account. Edward, found guilty of murder, was sentenced to the state prison, and it is the only known case in which testimony from a ghost helped convict <laughs> a murderer. So, the details are a, a, a lot more intense than, than that, a lot more detailed. It's fascinating that's because it's true. It, it is. It's a, it's, it's a true story. I love the twist 
that it was the defense attorney who thought she would look more foolish, and yet the more she spoke, the more credible she became. So it makes you wonder, did she really see that ghost? Perfect, perfect. Well, I thought we'd finish with one last story. Aslan, did you have another story? Well, if you go, yeah, if you go right ahead if you got another one. You said you had two. Yeah, but it's not that good. I think you probably have a better one. Okay. I've got this classic story called The White Wolf. She snapped awake out of a deep sleep, screaming aloud in terror. In her nightmare, a large white wolf had been chasing her around and around the house, gaining on her with every step until it finally pounced on her and ripped out her throat. She lay shaking for hours, unable to sleep after such a terrifying dream. But morning finally arrived, and the day was completely normal. Celia forgot all about her dream, until the moment her parents reminded her that they would be going out that night to celebrate their anniversary. Celia turned milk white. In her dream, the white wolf had come to kill her while her parents were out celebrating their anniversary. She started shaking and begging them not to go. Her parents were astonished at her behavior and finally shamed her into staying home alone that night. Fearfully, Celia locked herself in the house as soon as her parents left, checking every door and every window. She tried to laugh it off as she got into bed, and finally she shook off her irrational fears and fell asleep. Celia snapped awake suddenly, every muscle tense. She heard the tinkling of falling glass from a broken window and the snuffling sound of a snout pressed on the floor. It was the sound of a hunting wolf. A werewolf. Real wolves did not break into houses when there were plenty of game outside. She could hear the click-clicking of the creature's claws on the wooden floor. The musky, foul smell of wet animal fur combined with the meaty breath of a carnivore drifted into the room. She could hear the werewolves panting right outside her bedroom. Then her body was out of bed and she sped through the bathroom and down the back stairs. She heard a soft growl and then the sound of animal feet pursuing her as she raced down the steps and tore open the back door. A glance at the window beside her showed the reflection of the werewolf leaping down from the last few steps behind her. Celia's feet screamed in protest as she ran painfully across the sharp gravel driveway towards the tool shed with the shovels and baseball bats, anything she could use as a weapon. But the huge red-eyed wolf was suddenly between her and the tool shed, stalking towards her. The cold wind pierced her skin as she turned and fled around the side of the house. She gasped as the white wolf howled and took off after her. She could hear the terrifying sound of the creature pounding feet. Faster, faster, she commanded her legs, panting desperately against the fear choking her. She would run around the house and back down the driveway. She thought with the clarity of of sheer horror. She felt the wolf snap at the back of her leg and felt the sting of teeth she put on speed. The wolf veered away from her suddenly and she felt a rush of hope. She couldn't hear the wolf now. Couldn't see it in the cloud darkened night. She kept running around the house, heading back towards the tool shed. To her intense relief, 
she heard the sound of a car coming down the road in front of the house. Her parents were back, and they would save her from the wolf. Then her heart stopped in panic as she turned the last corner and saw the shape of the white wolf as it stood balanced on the porch railing right in front of her. It sprang upon Celia, huge teeth tearing into her flesh and ripping out her throat. She fell under the weight of her body, hot blood spilling all over the ground and died seconds after she hit the ground. One minute later, her parents' car pulled into the driveway, its headlight blinding the white wolf as it pulled towards the house. Frightened, the wolf backed away from its kill and then ran away. Liking it? Yeah, that was scary. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, even if we're non-believers and we're atheists, doesn't mean we can't enjoy the stories of Halloween. Yeah. No, and if anybody has a wonderful strange nightmare dream you were going to have to tell us about the next show. <laughs> I'd love to hear an atheist ghost story. <laughs> Maybe they'll come out of the come out of this into a dream. Perfect. Well, that takes us to the end of our show, guys. How do you guys mm-hmm. like it so far? Pretty good? You guys were okay with this? Oh, Were you too terrified No. Perfect. Perhaps my younger child is. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's sleeping with me tonight. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I, you guys can follow us on uh, leftofthevalley.com. You can follow us on Facebook. You can go Block Talk and follow us. If you sign up at Block Talk, they will send you an email whenever we're uh, airing the show. We're also now on Spreaker. Coming up, our next show will be Deconversion Stories. You know, we've been talking about atheist stories and all that, but we've never really um, done how we got there. So I think we'll talk about that. And we also have a show coming up as well with Dr. Del Rey about the myth of sexual addiction. So until then, guys, have a happy and safe Halloween. Happy Halloween. And I guess we'll leave you with, as you requested, here's Thriller. Between the eyes